So we are in part three tonight of our study called Risky Resistance. And what we're going to do tonight is take a look at chapter two of Daniel. And as we get into this section, uh, we are going to see a couple of things occurring that uh, change the direction of the book of Daniel, at least momentarily. Uh, remember, I mentioned last week that there are two different languages that are represented in the book of Daniel. Chapter one is written in Hebrew. And now in chapter two, beginning in verse five, that begins the Aramaic section of the book that will go through the end of chapter seven. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to take a look at this uh, court legend of Daniel. And what we're going to notice as we uh, read about Daniel is he parallels in many ways the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, too. So what we find here in these legends that are written are ways of encouraging uh, the people uh, to continue to resist against uh, the foreign empire and in the midst of facing their own possible suffering and trauma that goes with it, to still trust in God, believe that he is sovereign, that he is going to uh, work on their behalf. So in chapter two, there are three sections to chapter two, and it's a long chapter. You can see it's like 49 verses. However, uh, if we break it down like this, it's, it's um, a lot of story, but there's basically three main sections to this chapter. One is a dream that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has, and this will become a major theme in the book of Daniel. We'll find some additional dreams coming. And of course, I mentioned a moment ago that much of what is happening here parallels the story of Joseph and Genesis where Pharaoh has dreams and needs someone to interpret them. The middle section of this chapter is Daniel's ability to interpret uh, the content and meaning of the king's dream. And then finally, at the end of the chapter, you have a foreign king that is being promoted. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar will actually pay homage to Daniel, uh, fall in worship to him, which is quite ironic. And we can see, even in the telling of this story, part of the purpose is to show that God is in control and eventually he will bring all kings to kneel before him. And that will be to the great advantage of the uh, people of Israel. So a couple interpretive and cultural notes that I want to mention before we actually read the text. First is a historical note. Um, it says in verse one that this dream occurred in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. One of the things that you're going to notice uh, is that the storyteller is not as concerned about historical accuracy as we might have in our heart as Westerners. This is uh, something that is telling us that Nebuchadnezzar actually had these dreams, if it's in his second year of reign, before he actually invaded Jerusalem and brought Daniel and his friends back to Babylon. But what we do know from different historical references is that while he has a dream, he has concerns and 
he is facing some challenges. And this is might be what prompts this dream. Uh, he made a failed attempt to invade Egypt in his fourth year of his reign. And when he did that, um, uh, his vulnerability caused the uh, tribe of Judah to rebel against him. And that occurs in his seventh year. So the historical notations don't all line up, but that's to the best of our ability, um, piecing it together, what has happened. So he's having trouble uh, in his kingdom and there are threats of Egypt. Uh, he has just done some battle with Assyria and lurking in the shadows are the Medo-Persian Empire. And so all of these things are uh, of great concern to him. So what he does is what is uh, natural for a king. He seeks the wisdom and insight of different uh, wise men. And in the Mesopotamia region, uh, they are also individuals that could be sorcerers or astrologers, as you can see on the screen there. And uh, that was a wide array of different advisors. And it seems as though Nebuchadnezzar is reliant upon these advisors to tell him what to do next. Now, here's the problem. Uh, once these individuals get into a position of uh, power uh, like this, uh, they want to keep that position. So we'll see here in verses 1 through 12 that Nebuchadnezzar begins to, um, to doubt what they're saying. And so in this dream, he will not just tell them the dream and ask for an interpretation. He will want them to tell the content of the dream, too. And that becomes a problem for these uh, advisors. They don't know what the dream is, and they encourage him to tell them the dream. And then they were going to make up some type of explanation. Finally, an interpretive note, Nebuchadnezzar, who is portrayed in these early chapters of Daniel as the villain, in many ways, he becomes kind of the placeholder for the real threat that happens later in the book. Uh, we've talked a little bit about Antiochus Epiphany. So it's almost as if Nebuchadnezzar is a foreshadow of Antiochus Epiphanes and the threat that he brings to the temple and, um, and to uh, Jewish culture. So Nebuchadnezzar, in many ways, and I think you'll see, it kind of represents imperial imperial leaders of the day and the empires that they rule. And this story goes far beyond his own reign. And I think that's why it's uh, the language changes to Aramaic is it is something that is being told for a later time that is uh, in the life of uh, the nation of Israel. So maybe a way to think about this is to look at it like this. You have the use of past stories to convey inspiration and courage for a present threat. So again, we said this before, this is something that has happened in the past. It's something that's a part of their uh, legend and storyline as a nation. And they bring this up. They shape it in the mold of Joseph uh, from uh, the book of Genesis to encourage the present generation in the second century BCE to have the courage and to fight the good fight against 
um, the Greece uh, powerhouse of Antiochus. So does that make sense to everybody? Any questions there? So that will bring us now to chapter two. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the chapter in three sections. Uh, I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version. So they will use in their translation the word Chaldean rather than Babylonian. It's the same thing. Uh, so just kind of keep that in mind. So verses one through 12. Here we go. In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed such dreams that his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, and the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had such a dream that my spirit is troubled by the desire to understand it. The Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will reveal the interpretation. The king answered the Chaldeans, This is a public decree. If you do not tell me both the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn from limb to limb, and your houses will be laid in ruins. But if you do tell me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time. Let the king first tell his servants the dream, and then we will give its interpretation. The king answered, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see I have firmly decreed, if you do not tell me the dream, there is but one verdict for you. You have agreed to speak lying and misleading words to me until things take a turn. Therefore, Tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king, There is no one on earth who can reveal what the king demands. In fact, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or a chanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king is asking is too difficult, and no one can reveal it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. And then verse 12, because of this, the king flew into a violent rage and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So we see that Nebuchadnezzar is troubled. He can't sleep. He's having dreams, plural. Uh, these dreams seem to be suggesting, I think he has a premonition that his kingdom is teetering. It's um, it's not as strong as what it was. And I think it's interesting that the writer of Daniel, if it is written down later um, in the second century rather than in the sixth century BCE, knows the content of what the dream is and then pulls Daniel into the story to talk about the meaning of the dream. Now, another thing that's interesting here is kind of the pretentious um, titles that we find of those that he's relying on for advice. Um, you'll notice in verse two, it says uh, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, or other prominent Babylonian individuals. And the list seems to portray an international 
uh, flavor of different types of advisors and religious practitioners that were found in the ancient Near East. And this was a common practice by kings of the day to rely upon the advisors. Now, it's still true in politics today that um, we talk about not just the president, but also his uh, his uh, advisors, uh, those that are surrounding him, those that are giving him advice, very similar type of thing. Now, what we find here, though, is what he is requesting is an obstacle. And the obstacle is not just the interpretation, which they could make up, but it's the content of the dream as well. So there's a high stakes potential danger that is happening here in the story. You heard the text where he says he's going to tear them from limb to limb. He's going to burn their houses into ruins. And if they uh, are unable to tell the content of the dream, then this is what he has decreed. Now, keep this in mind. The decrees of King Nebuchadnezzar will come back to bite him later with Daniel because he cannot reverse a decree that will eventually throw Daniel into the lion's den. So these decrees seem to be made uh, kind of impromptu and knee-jerk, and, and as he does this, he allows his, his rage and his anger to get the best of him. Uh, his fear is a part of this as well. Now, if these individuals can tell the content of the dream, which is basically the idea of what am I thinking right now? So if I was to ask you, hey, tell me what I'm thinking, you might come up with some different things, but for the most part, you don't know. So they're at this position where uh, they know that they cannot do this. I mean, if he gives the content, they can put a spin on it. But what we find here is that um, if they were able to tell the content of the dreams, uh, there would be great political rewards uh, that would be given to them. So these courtiers, uh, as a general term for all these different types of individuals, um, they're, they're stalling, basically. And as they stall, I think Nebuchadnezzar, in the back of his mind, is thinking, okay, what do I have to fear here? Is it simply their stupidity or inability, or do they have something else going on? Is there a conspiracy to overthrow my rule? Um, is treason happening here? So the tone here is such that he's going to get rid of those that he possibly um, thinks could be working against him. You see that in verse 13, it says the decree was issued and the wise men were about to be executed. So they're at this position and now the spotlight turns on Daniel. And as it does, uh, he becomes a vehicle that God is going to use not only to reveal the content of the dream, but also the meaning of it. So we'll take note here that uh, there is a God in heaven that is able to unveil. And that's what Daniel is going uh, to appeal because there are uh, individuals that are going to fall under this decree as well. Take a look at verse 13. 
the, the decree was issued and the wise men were about to be executed and they looked for Daniel and his companions to execute them. So they're a part of this training program we saw in chapter one, a three-year uh, indoctrination, and they're going to get caught up in the flood of this violence that Nebuchadnezzar has. But, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, but Daniel is going to step in and once again uh, be the individual that intercedes on behalf, not just for himself, not just for his three friends, but all of these advisors. So that'll happen in verse 14. So um, look at verse 14. It says, then Daniel responded with prudence and direction. When you hear that, you should think wisdom. Uh, here is an individual just like Joseph who had wisdom that gave advice to Pharaoh. Now he's going to give advice first to a man by the name of Arioch. Look at verse 14. Daniel responded with prudence and direction to Arioch, the king's chief executor. He's the hitman. He's the one that's going to carry out uh, the executions who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. And he asked Arioch, the royal official, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Arioch then explained the matter to David. Uh, Daniel, I'm sorry. So Daniel went in and requested that the king give him time and he would tell the king the interpretation. Now, here's what I think is interesting. This is the second time in the book where Daniel speaks up and he directly asked the individual in charge. Remember in chapter one, there was an individual that was in charge of all of these individuals that were taken to Babylon. His name was Ashpenaz. And here is Arioch. Uh, now, there is an interesting thing here as well. Um, Arioch is a, uh, a term that is also used back in the book of Genesis as well. So there's another literary link that is taking place here. But what we find is that he has an open heart and an open mind to listen to the wisdom of Daniel. And that's where verse 17 comes in. One of the critical centers of this chapter is the necessity of prayer. And Daniel is going to make an appeal to God to give to him the ability to uh, intercede, not just for himself, but all these wise men. So take a look at verse 17, and we'll read the prayer as well. It says, Then Daniel went to his home, and he informed his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions with the rest of the wise men of Babylon might not perish. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So he appeals to others to intercede on his behalf so that he might be able to understand the content and interpretation of the dream. And when it comes to him, here's this doxology. Here is this prayer that he offers to God. He says in verse 20, blessed be the name of God from age to age for wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. 
He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. To you, O God of my ancestors, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power and have now revealed to me what we asked of you for you have revealed to us what the king ordered. So uh, an appeal to prayer and then a, 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 an expression of praise. And so you have kind of a pattern here that seems to be found in many different places in the Old Testament. There's a clarification of the threat, okay? Then there is a gathering of the community to appeal um, to God to intercede on their behalf. And then there's a song of praise that is given, glorifying God that he has intervened. So you'll see that in the story of the Exodus. You'll see that in different stories, this pattern that occurs. God uh, and his power is over and above the apparent powers of the world and the kings. That's kind of at the center of uh, this, this part of the chapter. And then that leads in to uh, his actual face-to-face -face encounter with Nebuchadnezzar. And so you'll notice on the screen here that beginning in chapter uh, 2, verse 24 and following, you'll find that Daniel um, goes before Arioch, first of all, and then before Nebuchadnezzar, and then he re reveals the content of the dream. Now, before we get there, though, you have to remi remind yourself that in the stories of the Old Testament, when a Jewish person stands before the king, whether it's Pharaoh, whether it's King Nebuchadnezzar, whether it's uh, the king uh, that um, is in charge of, of, of uh, the nation and, and tribes of Israel, uh, it always is a fearful thing to stand before the king. And you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know the emotion of the king and what he's going to do. So Daniel steps up as if he has a choice. I mean, this uh, decree of execution was on his head as well, but uh, he steps up before him. So let me read this and then we'll, uh, then we'll get into the content of the rest of the chapter as to what the dream represents. Verse 24, therefore Daniel went to Ariel, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. You see a lot of repetition in the story. This has been told to us several times now. And he said to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will give the king the interpretation. Now, isn't it interesting here that Daniel says he's going to give the interpretation? Well, what is the king looking for? He's looking for the content of the dream as well. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who can tell the king the interpretation. The king said to Daniel, whose name was, his Babylonian name was Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or diviners, and here's all these titles that we were given at the beginning of the chapter, um, as you know, these, these pretentious type titles, no one can show to the king the mystery. That's the second time in the chapter where it talks about mystery that the king is asking. But 
And in humility, Daniel says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. There's a third time mysteries uh, uh, referred to. And he has disclosed to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen at the end of days. So kind of keep that in your mind. At the end of days, this has something to do about the future. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed were these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be hereafter. Again, he's worrying about his kingdom. He's worrying about the vulnerability of his rule. And as you lay in bed, you were thinking about these things and the revealer of mysteries to disclose to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me because of any wisdom that I have more than any other living being, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. So notice what Daniel's doing here. He's kind of disarming um, the king a little bit by his humility. He's saying, no one can really give you, but there is a God who reveals the mysteries of heaven. And so what Daniel is being portrayed as here is kind of the ideal scribe, the ideal advisor, the ideal um, uh, person that a king needs that's willing to tell the truth and uh, not paint it over or not give uh, um, some type of uh, twisted explanation, that type of thing. So he's appearing before the king and he gives all credit to God that what he's going to tell him is comes from God. It's not his ability. Although the text is already setting us up here by telling us that he is wise, that he is an individual that has the ability to give wisdom. So in some ways he downplays that, but at the same time, the text keeps underlying this idea of an ideal advisor, the one who carries forth wisdom. So any comments, questions before we get into the content of the dream itself? So Daniel gives this doxology, and then now we get into the content of the dream in verse 31. Do you have any thoughts? Any questions? Okay, take a look at verse 31. Here's the content. You were looking, O king, and lo, there was a great statue. This statue was huge. Its brilliance, extraordinary. It was standing before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of that statue was of fine gold. Its chest and arms of silver and its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked on, a stone was cut out, not by human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So first thing he does is he describes 
the content of the dream, a great statue. Now, a statue and great figures like that uh, is not unusual uh, in the records of different kings of the ancient Near East. Usually, usually there is some type of monument either to a god or to themselves. And that's what we're going to see in the next chapter. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to build a huge statue for his own glory. And uh, he'll want everybody to worship him uh, through the statue. That's next week in chapter three. But the important thing to notice about the statue is it's made of different types of metals. And the different metals represent different qualities. So you have the highest quality gold, then silver, then bronze, and so forth. So as it goes down the statue, the quality decreases and it becomes more vulnerable when you get to its feet of iron and clay. So there's been a lot of different artistic renditions of what this might look like. And here may be a, um, a description of what the, uh, he saw in his dream. Uh, the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the uh, belly and um, and the around the uh, hip area of bronze, the legs of iron, and then the feet of mixed clay and iron. So this would be enough to kind of go, what on earth is this? What does it mean? Uh, so we can see why Nebuchadnezzar is confounded. We can see why he wants some type of interpretation as to what this means. So here, what we find is the focus is, is moving our eyes down the text to a stone. And that's found in verse 35. This stone strikes the statue and, and not only destroys the statue, but it grows a small stone grows into a big mountain, which is interesting. And uh, it fills the whole earth. So you obviously have a lot of hyperbole here that's going on. But the head of gold uh, is, um, is not as valuable as what you think. The mountain is what is valuable here because it is greater than all these qualities and metals that have come before. So some thoughts, any comments or questions? Okay. All right. So let's talk about this stone for a moment. So this stone in verse 35 uh, seems to be representing the ultimate symbol of strength and power. And in Daniel, the stone is in the hand of God and it, I think what it's saying is God has the power to resist all human authority and human power. And so in Daniel chapter two, the stone is not some type of human government. It, this is God and his sovereignty. And here's where the theme of sovereignty starts to come into the text. The sovereignty of God has more power than all human kingdoms. So in chapter two, it's suggesting in this dream that God will bring an end to the type of human empires that bring oppression and cruelty and violence. Because 
we saw back in verse 12, when the king threw, uh, flew into a rage, the first thing that he wants to do is bring violence upon those that are not uh, uh, doing his bidding. So it seems as though this, um, this statue, before he goes on and gives to us the explanation, all this is is the content in verses 31 through 35. That's the content of the dreams. But what we find is that it will be applied down in verse 36 and following to the kingdoms that are still to come. So verse 36 will uh, take place in giving to us, and, and I think I got a slide out of context here, um, or out of order rather. I'll get to that in a moment. Let's look at verse 36. It says, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, into whose hand he has given human beings wherever they live, the wild animals of the field and birds of the air, and whom he has established as ruler over them all, you, Nebuchadnezzar are the head of gold. After you will arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the whole earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, just as iron crushes and smashes everything, it shall crush and shatter all these. As you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the strength of the iron shall be in it, as you saw the iron mixed with the clay. As the toes of the feet were part iron and part clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with clay, so will they mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. So here we see it, he's talking about a succession of kingdoms that's going to follow Nebuchadnezzar one after another. Then verse 44, it says, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall this kingdom be left to another people. It shall crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain, not by hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and gold. The great God has informed the king what shall be hereafter. That's the second time that's mentioned in the chapter. It's what's coming. The dream is certain and its interpretation trustworthy. Okay, so before we see the end of the chapter, we need to go ahead to, there's a chart that is in your notes. And it represents the succession of different kingdoms. Now, let me preface this by saying there's a couple of different ways of looking at this. If these are successive kingdoms uh, that come one right after another, starting with Nebuchadnezzar, different interpreters have looked at this statue and what it represents in two different ways. One is called a Roman view and the other is called a Greek view. 
Now, the first couple are the same. Now, look at the left side of the chart that I've given to you. It, this is the Roman view that says, okay, the head of gold, it represents Nebuchadnezzar's reign in uh, Babylon. And that his reign was from 605 to 539 BCE. Next comes the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, and it's kind of a combo empire. Uh, one is more dominant than the other. When we have the vision of the animals... Uh, which come later rather than the statue, this might represent the fact that um, one of these uh, kingdoms is stronger than the other. I'll wait till then to talk about that. But in this view, it suggests that the Medo-Persian Empire, reigning from 539 to 331 BCE, is the second kingdom. Then the third, being the bronze, um, uh, down through the midsection and through the hips, is the kingdom of Greece. Uh, it is a kingdom that wa is widespread over the earth, all the way from Egypt to India. Um, and what we find is that um, Alexander the Great, who is the one, is representing the third kingdom, and he rules from, or at least Greece rules, he doesn't, he dies at a young age from 331 to 146 BCE. And then the last kingdom is Rome, which uh, reigns from 146 BCE all the way to 476 AD. So that's the fourth kingdom. Now, let me say this here. If that's the view here, then we see how a lot of times people take the vision of the statue to talk about something that is yet to come. Now, coming later in Daniel is a, a vision of 70 weeks. And um, that plays prominent into uh, end times theory and end time theology. Uh, a lot of what many of us have been exposed to uh, through the Left Behind series and things like that is kind of built on this idea that the last kingdom was Rome and that there's going to be a, a resurgence of Rome. And at one time, at least back in the 70s, during the days of the great, uh, late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey's book and that type of thing, began to look at the Roman Catholic Church as kind of the evil empire uh, and it was such a uh, that's that was such a, a terrible thing. But that's how the m mentality became uh, a resurgence of the Roman Empire. And that's how it's going to be in the end days. And and the 70th week is the Great Tribulation. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But they hold to this viewpoint the that the last kingdom, the last of the statue is Rome. Look at the right column, though. And if this book is to gear up for courage during the Maccabean Revolution, when they're trying to overthrow Antiochus Epiphanes, it might make more sense to see the statue representing, yes, the head of gold is Babylon. However, seeing Medi uh, Medo and Persia or Media and Persia as two separate parts 
of the statue rather than a combined part. So uh, the media, uh, media empire would represent the shoulders of silver um, and uh, then the Persian empire representing uh, the uh, the bronze and hips and that Greece, the fourth kingdom, uh, is the iron, which uh, Alexander the Great uh, legend tells us that he conquered so much under his rule that he wept when there were no more worlds to conquer, or at least worlds he thought that was available to him to conquer. And yet the Romans conquered the Greece uh, empire. So what I'm saying is this, I don't want to confuse you. This plays into a lot of end time scenario. Um, this plays into a lot of the left behind type of theology. This plays into the idea that the book of Daniel is not really telling us of a prediction about the end times, you know, a thousand years from now. Uh, but it was telling us about how the nation of Israel was to be prepared for this vile man by the name of Antiochus IV, also called Epiphanes, and how to stand up to him. So I'll let you kind of think about that. Um, I mean, there's a lot of arguments that go each way on these two views. The way I'm leaning, just to give you my thoughts, is because I think the book comes together in the second century and that it wasn't finalized in the sixth century and that there are different editors that finally bring it all together, that this seems to be a more likely view in light of the time that it was written and the purpose for which it was written. However, this is a very popular view among evangelicals and um, especially those that hold to kind of a pre-tribulation uh, rapture type of uh, theology. So I'll let you kind of, you know, think about that yourself. We'll come back to it again a couple of more times uh, in the book of Daniel. But let me stop. Can I clarify anything? That's that's some heady, heady stuff that I've just told you there. Any questions? Okay. So notice what happens at the end of the chapter. Instead of the king flying off the handle, which I would think that he would do, because basically the interpretation of this dream says you're going down, big guy. <laughs> you're going to be conquered, right? But he doesn't. He doesn't fly off in a violent rage. He doesn't issue a new decree that Daniel and his friends should be uh, slaughtered. Not at this point. That will come a little bit later in the book. But the king actually worships Daniel, pays homage to him. Take a look at verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, worshiped Daniel, and commanded that a grain offering and incense be offered to him. That's what you offer God. You offer uh, incense and grain offerings to God. So it says here, the king said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel, 
gave him many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Ding, ding, ding. Sounds just like Joseph, right? Second in command to Pharaoh. Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the, at the king's court. So he's second in command. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have prominent positions. But what strikes me here is that Nebuchadnezzar bows down in worship to Daniel. And uh, this theme here of this humble Jewish boy, this young man, um, is elevated. And this becomes the hope for people later that plays into the hope of those who have been disenfranchised by Greece and their temple has been, uh, um, an, uh, there's been an abomination of a sacrifice of a pig on the altars there by Antiochus. And so the dream is kind of a different way or an alternative reality that we often don't see on earth, but God in heaven is able to reverse the course of things, uh, no matter who is in charge and who is in power. So I guess Daniel chapter 2, verse 46, is important because uh, the, I guess the uh, apologetic is the way I put it, that verse 46 is plain is, ah, even the king is ultimately bowing down, not only to Daniel, but to Daniel's God. And it would kind of demythologize uh, the idea that um, that the king is God incarnate. That will become an important part under the Caesars that believe that they were uh, uh, God on earth. Uh, Julius Caesars and uh, others like him. So some thoughts there, anything that hopefully some things are coming out of the text. You go, oh yeah, this is emphasizing the sovereignty of God. It's emphasizing the fact that even though kings and rulers uh, have power on earth, they don't have the ultimate power that God is still in charge and God is still at work even when we might not understand his mysteries, which again has been repeated several times in the chapter. I'm going to give you a couple of contemporary reflections. Uh, one is a reflection on on what this is doing for um, for the stature of Daniel as part of this uh, her hero in the life of the nation, and then a couple of contemporary reflections. Okay, any any questions there? So it seems as though chapter two is setting up Daniel as the ultimate man of wisdom. And he becomes this idealized hero. Um, and he is offering hope to the diaspora, those that have been scattered because of these various empires, that they too can rise up into the higher levels of 
of power even within uh, these kingdoms. Joseph did it. Daniel did it. Um, and as they do rise up in these positions, they will be placed like Esther in a position of intervening on behalf of a vulnerable people. So this will become a part of chapter four and five that's coming too. that at the core of this idealized Jew in a Gentile empire is having superior wisdom and uh, this wisdom that God gives. So I don't think it's accidental. If you were to read this story here, along with Genesis chapter 41, you would see a lot of similarities. So the story is about Daniel, but it's almost as if the story of Joseph is the pattern that is used to write this story. Does that make sense? So what are what are the people to do? Well, ultimately, they must remember. I think that's at the heart of this. They must remember in the situation that they are in what God has done through Joseph and Esther and Daniel and, and a few others as well, Josiah and Hezekiah and some others in the Old Testament. But uh, any thoughts there before I get to a couple of contemporary thoughts and then we'll be done for the evening? Nothing? Okay. So here's a couple of contemporary reflections. Um, so what do you do with this chapter? How do you apply it? Um, yeah, it emphasizes the sovereignty of God. But what about living in a world of competing empires and so forth? So uh, this scholar by the name of Nancy Cardoso, uh, I think it's Pereira, uh, wrote in a academic book called Cross Currents. This is back in June of 2016 about what this chapter implies for our day and age. So take a look at this uh it, it, it this uh article says she she finds hope in the destruction um of these kingdoms because people have the ability to get back what was stolen from them through invasion and through spoils of war and that type of thing so i'll just kind of read these i, I thought they were kind of insightful number one this denounces historical and current relations of uh, the type of Christianity um, that is built on power. So think about um, think about the Crusades. Think about that era of church history um, when it was all about the accumulation of power and land and riches. Uh, she says that would denounce that. There's kind of a in uh, tongue-in-cheek criticism of the founding of our own country as well, where we used a, a thing called manifest destiny to justify moving across the United States uh, uh, westward and taking native inhabitants' lands and uh, their, their resources from them. Number two, this denounces Christianity trapped by the interest of global elites in exchange for favors that support the accumulation and concentration of wealth, which legitimize the 
uh, systematic forms of exploit uh, exploitation of human labor. Uh, so uh, this this type of thing can get really really intense because now we're talking as well of how people in power use people for cheap labor. Number three, denounces all worship of capital consumption and Western fundamentalism that feeds the theological and Christian community spaces. In other words, um, when capitalism becomes our God, then it feeds into theological systems like prosperity theology. The God uh, is, uh, if we have enough faith, he'll make us, make, make us rich. Number four, refuse any and all use of the Christian faith and the Bible as justification for war, occupation, and the destruction of other religions and ways of life. Again, that has been done repeatedly at times in our history where we plucked out and cherry-picked verses to justify uh, invasion and violence. Number five, affirm ourselves as one religion among others, a people of faith among others to fight for justice, love, and mercy, and uh, walk humbly before God. That's Micah 6, 8. Um, she is suggesting here that we have to learn how to get along in the world with people of other faith, that we share the planet, and that we need to be able to get along and not use whatever resources and power we have to try to dominate and change or colonialize other people. I thought that was insightful uh, in this chapter because that's what had happened to Israel, all of these things, and they were the victims of it. So a second thought here comes from Walter Brueggemann. Uh, you know that he's one of my favorite Old Testament scholars. And um, he talks a little bit about the arrogant autonomy of superpowers that think that if they have enough uh, military might, that there's nothing that they can't do or accomplish. So he says in, in some writings that he has, the Old Testament witness teaches us that there's a grave danger to nations making such unrestricted claims of temporal ultimacy. And what he's saying is all nations, all empires really do have feet that's mixed with clay and iron. And all it takes is God's power to cause it to come uh, uh, tumbling down. Number two, he says, any state that imagines that it can use its power in unrestrained ways against other state or vulnerable population, no matter how weak, misunderstands its place in a world under divine rule. In other words, this particular chapter is suggesting that God is ultimately the one that is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is the one that will hold nations and her leaders accountable. So I want to close with this quote uh, from Brueggemann, and then we'll see if you have any questions. He says, and I quote, the uh, culmination of the dream is that the kingdom of the God of heaven will ultimately prevail. All other pretenders will soon pass away and be forgotten. In the end, none of the pretenders can stand before the force and will of the God of heaven who will prevail amid the historical political process. 
Kingdoms come and go. They rise and fall. In a modern secular mode, Paul Kennedy, in his book, The Rise and Fall of Great Powers, Economic Change and Military Conflict from 1500 to 2000, that's quite a title, <laughs> has traced the rise and fall of modern empires, Spanish, Dutch, English. His general thesis is that uh, is that states fall when they have invested excessive amounts of money on the military that caused an economic imbalance. It requires little imagination to see that Kennedy's causation is readily recast in terms of the hubris of self-sufficiency, a hubris often performed by old empires in the ancient uh, in the time of ancient Daniel. In either terms, modern, secular, or theological, empires rise and fall, prosper, and then are forgotten. Um, again, it does a good job of saying, okay, how do you take a chapter like this and how do you apply it uh, to where we live and the time in which we live? So let's see if you have any questions uh, that you have for before we sign off tonight. Any Anything that you'd like to ask, anything that I can clarify? And again, don't be feel feel free to push back on things like this. There's sometimes various viewpoints, and these are all done by very, um, very honest and um, uh, uh, scholars that are just struggling with the text, basically, because this is not easy to come up with a system of interpretation that has no gaps or holes in it. You have some thoughts, questions, comments insights, concerns. You are a quiet bunch. <laughs> so what's going to happen as we move into chapter three next week is Nebuchadnezzar doesn't learn his lesson. Okay. And um, even though he has bowed down to Daniel, he has given homage to Daniel. Now he's going to build this statue, this golden statue, and he's going to require everyone in his entire kingdom to bow down to it. And that's going to set Daniel and the rest of his um, his uh, people into a precarious situation. What are they going to do? Are they going to stand up against this tyrant? And if they do, what is going to happen? And that's where the fiery furnace comes into play in chapter three. Okay, well, I'll close off there and uh, wish you a good rest of the evening. And uh, for the two of you that are headed out to Ashtabula uh, <laughs> this weekend for family reunion, I hope you have a great time. I hope to see you, Mark and uh, Beth, this Sunday, okay? Will do. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Good night. Good night. Good night.